Hello, and welcome to Someday We'll All Be Dead, a podcast where we talk about all the things with a social work perspective. I'm your host, Hallie Harris, and I am a hospice social worker. I am joined again today, luckily, by my mother, Melody. Hello. Today, we're going to talk about the new bill that's in the Washington State Legislature, and it is an update for the Death of Dignity Act. Are you familiar with the Death of Dignity Act? Yes, I am. What do you know about it? That a person can, if they're dying in the process of dying, I would assume that's what it is. It's not for just somebody who wants to die. <laughs> right. Uh, that the doctor approves them and they get the medication to basically off themselves. <laughs> well, <laughs> Put it, themselves. in the most crude way, yes. It is a very crude way, but... So, just to remind the listeners, you can go back and listen to my Death of Dignity episode. It was way back, geez, probably two years ago now. Uh, But basically, you need two physicians, and it has to be MDs at this point. Um, You have to have two physicians that are testifying that you are, in fact, having a prognosis of six months or less. You have to be a Washington State resident over the age of 18. You have to be mentally competent. You have to have, be able to make informed decisions. You can't be uh, coerced by anyone. You have to testify to all of this in a written request, an oral request. Um, and then you have a 15-day waiting period between your first request and the time you can request your prescription. And then you can get a lethal dose of medication from a pharmacy. Now, the law... Um, did, does, and still will require that any physicians or pharmacies have the option to opt out if they don't want to participate for whatever reason. And then you get the medication. You do have to self-administer. It comes in a compounded powder form. You mix it with a liquid. You ingest it. And I would say on average, people are usually unconscious within five minutes and usually pass away within one to four hours. So... There are outliers to all of that, but that's generally, in a very, very quick review, that's how Death with Dignity works. And this uh, act was initially an initiative 1000. It was put into law as RCW 70.245, the Washington Death with Dignity Act, if you want to look it up. And it came into effect in March of 2009. So we've actually had this in our laws. We were the second ones in the country. Oregon was first um, to enact this law. So uh, I do have some stats to talk about in general, uh, and then I'm going to get into what I really want to talk about today, which is the update that is a substitute for the bill. It's right now it's called House Bill 1141-2021-22, Increasing Access to Death of Dignity. So are you ready? Yeah, I'm ready. (laughs) So I looked up the data for death with dignity because I want to have a basis for us to be thinking about why this bill needs to go through, why it's important for, for access to be increased. Mm -hmm. I was listening to the subcommittee on health that just, I think it was January 20th that they had a session where they talked about the new amendment, the latest amendments and passed it through the, um, representative side. Now it's with the Senate of Washington State. And during that meeting, they were very careful to 
note that, you know, it is still controversial and there's, you know, it's still a sensitive subject, but the majority of the reason that they need more access is especially in more rural areas and particularly in Eastern Washington was noted that there are, a, there's a huge lack in resources for both physicians, which are MDs, and qualifying or participating pharmacies. So um, that's one reason that was a, a big noted issue. The other reason was the 15 day waiting period. So we'll get into that in just a little bit. And if you have questions or comments, just jump in when I'm talking about this. So the latest data that was collected, they do data on this every year, um, but this was written in July of 2019. I'm sure you can all assume that's 19's data wasn't uh, available in 2020 because of, you know, the pandemic. Um, so this, I just keep going back and forth between data and data, whatever. <clears throat> Don't judge me. Uh, so this data for 2018, there was 267 prescriptions that were dispensed, right? Medications dispensed was 267. For death with dignity. For death with dignity. Okay. 158 different physicians participated, 61 pharmacies participated, and of the 267 prescriptions, 251 of the people actually used the medication. Yeah, it's nice that it's their option to have it available. Mm-hmm. Um, there were 29 that died without, and there's 19 that say unknown if they actually ingested or not. That's because the Department of Health requires that information gets put back to them about certain data points regarding that, and they just didn't get the data back for those 19. Of those 251 that took it, 86% of them were at home, 92% of them were enrolled in hospice care, which is awesome. 86% mm -hmm. live west of the Cascades. Really? Why do you think that is? Because of <clears throat> population density. That's definitely an issue. <laughs> <laughs> yes, population density is much thicker over here on the west side. Also, um, there is a correlation between um, some college education and the use of this medication. There's also a little bit more liberal feeling, although anybody that lives in Washington knows damn well there's plenty of conservatives on this side of the of the mountains, yes. Go back to, I have a question about the percentage that wasn't on hospice. Were they in the hospital or were they at home when they, and how did they do that process if they're not under hospice? Well, that's a good question. So you can still access death identity without being in hospice. Oh, okay. So that's number one. 92% of people were enrolled in hospice. I think it's highly encouraged because you do get more support for the patient and family in the meantime, and especially for those other 29 that died without it, um, like you said, a lot of people get the medication prescription, not even necessarily the meds themselves, but the prescription just to have some control mm -hmm. and sense of security knowing that it's there if they want it. Um, <clears throat> I'm actually kind of surprised it's 251 of 267. I thought it would actually be a little lower, more people getting the prescription and not using it. But, um, and 86% were at home. I'm actually surprised that number is not higher. And the reason I say that is if they are at a facility, like a skilled nursing facility, um, they regulate the medication and their 
federal regulations and state regulations do not allow for them to dispense medication to someone that can't take it on their own. Well, you have to, with this, you have to be able to take it on your own. Right. So, but even if, like, if you were, if you had cancer and you didn't have any other family and you were living at a skilled facility, you would not be able to access due to their own policies of not allowing it. Yeah. So you would have to, like check yourself out and go to a hotel or something, you know, or go to a family member's or be in a bus. So <laughs> don't if, do that. <laughs> so if a normal person say I had cancer and mm -hmm. I, or I was dying and I didn't have not even cancer, whatever I was dying mm -hmm. and I wasn't under hospice, mm -hmm. but I was mentally capable. Mm -hmm. I could go to my doctor mm -hmm. and I could ask him for this. And then I'd have to go to another doctor to get a second opinion or how does so that So if you were not enrolled in hospice and you didn't have access to some other things, and in fact, in any way, I would still recommend, what they recommend is that people engage with an organization called End of Life Washington. Mm. And they have a network of doctors, pharmacies, etc. They also have volunteers that can come out and be with you in your home or wherever you are. Um, to help you through the process so <clears throat> they can actually connect you with participating physicians so I can't just go to my doctor you could if they're willing to right but if they weren't willing to would they point me to somebody who was that depends on the doctor uh, okay so let's let's back up for okay. a minute so if you're going to your doctor and asking for this number one if if anyone out there's listening to this and you're going to your doctor asking for death with dignity access you need to make sure that if they are the first doctor you're telling that they put it in their records and that you get a copy because that will start your time frame and your waiting period. If you don't get that in writing and your doctor chooses to be unethical and not write it down, even if they're not willing to participate, then your time clock has not started until you get it in oh, writing. Oh, that sucks. So the other issue is... 15 um, days is too long because you could be... Well, we're in, getting to that. Put a, put a pin in that okay. thought because we're definitely coming back to that, which is really why this today we're talking about this. So if you have a doctor, let's say, in a religious-affiliated uh, organization, right. then they are not allowed to participate at this moment. That's another provision that this House bill discusses. So <clears throat> religious organizations... For, you know, I'm not singling out Providence. I think they're a fine organization, but they do have religious objections to death of dignity. That's their right. That's fine. But if you're a patient of theirs, their doctors are not going to be allowed to participate. Yeah. They may be, you know, they should, if you request it, at least write it down so your time starts. Um, and maybe point you to End of Life Washington to continue finding the other two doctors you need. Okay. So that's just something to know as advocacy for yourself or for your loved ones. That if you have someone going through this, you need to make sure that you advocate for them. And I would strongly recommend that you go on to End of Life Washington and request assistance. They're super easy to work with. It's an easy form to fill out online. <clears throat> Excuse me. And uh, the volunteers will get back to you like the next day. Hmm. So they're oh, very helpful. Good. Yeah. Um, speaking of more of the statistics. <clears throat> Excuse me. So the youngest person to request this, and we're still in 2018 now, was 28. What? The oldest was 98. 44% uh, were married. 
I'm guessing that probably has to do a lot with people being in older years and being widowed. And 75% of them had cancer. So 25% had other issues like ALS or Parkinson's or mm -hmm. etc. Use has steadily increased. In 2009, it was 64. 65 people requested, 64 took it. In 2013, 169 people took the medication. And now in 2018, 267. But I want people listening to remember, you know, you hear these numbers and 267 sounds like a lot, right? Well, maybe not because coronavirus is now half a million and numbers don't mean anything anymore. But in Washington State in 2018, the same year, the total number of deaths out of almost 7.5 million people were 56,913. Various reasons. Of all reasons. Yeah. Whether it was accidental or murders or suicides yeah. or... All the things. Medical issues or whatever. 56,913 deaths and only 267 access this medication. So I want people to... And that's not even the total people that took it. 251 took it. So when people are talking about this, they've been... You know, the concerns, the red flags that they wave are... This is going to be a way to kill off dead people, you know, older people that we're just going to shove them towards this, blah, blah, blah. It's proven since 2009 that it's not the case. Well, the people themselves <clears throat> have to request this. They do, but the, the people that have been anti-death of dignity for this whole time, including people that live in states not able to access this, their argument, aside from religious arguments or, you know, whatever, is ethical arguments that they fear that people will not want to be a burden financially or physically to their family and feel like they have to do this. And I think the statistics just show that's not the case. If, if that was the case, there'd be a lot more people accessing it. Well, there's also a requirement of exp expansive life. I mean, you, you only have a short window. Right. Yeah, it's not like, say, now, this is another thing. I should ask this years ago, but it wasn't <laughs> around then. When, say when your dad was sick, mm -hmm. they actually, of course, we were crazy and weren't listening because we weren't hearing anything at that time, uh, said he had six months or less. Mm -hmm. Now, he could have requested it if it was available, if we knew about it at that time, he probably would have requested it. Now, he lived for two years after that. Mm -hmm. Well, here's what I tell people, and this is what I've recently told people. So to be on the hospice is a requirement of six months or less. But that six months or less is kind of squishy. It's, would I be surprised in six months or less, then they can be on hospice. For Death with Dignity Access, physicians that are signing for this, it's a pretty hard six months or less. Like, I don't have really any doubt this person's going to be dead in six months or less. So the standard of six months or less is generally a higher standard. A lot higher, yeah. Now, that's not to say people aren't leaving life on the table. Anytime they're requesting <clears throat> medication in their life, they are leaving some life on the table. Right. For some people, their autonomy and independence is worth that cost. Well, also, the life they may live, leave on the table could be full of a lot of pain. It absolutely could, yes. Yeah. Yes. That wouldn't be cool. 
So I, I agree with you. I think prognosis and prognostication in general is difficult at best. We never really know. Everybody has a different journey, even with the same age and gender and predispositions and same diagnosis. People will go down that path differently. Yeah, but, it's a crapshoot. They don't know how long. They can give you a guesstimate on how long you're going to be around, but they really don't know. Yeah. I mean, it is an educated guess, but it's still a guess. Three, six months. Could be a week they're gone. Now that, you know, working in hospice for the past five years, I will say that prob at least 75%, they're pretty spot on yeah. with their prognosis. Not to say it's not. You know, and there are times when people will come on in dire straits. For example, if people have sepsis or pneumonia. They could die off quickly or they could recover. And in those circumstances, people would not be allowed to, to access death with dignity. So right. just so you know, as an example. Any other questions about that? Did I answer your question? I think so, yeah. Okay. <clears throat> so now we're going to talk about House Bill 1141, which, as I said, just the end of last month or beginning of this month now, I can't remember, they did actually vote and pass that through Washington State Legislature on the representative side. This bill is now with the Senate. I did write to my own senator. We have just one for our district, for our area. And, um, and I wrote to them. You know, as a social worker in general, I advocate for self-determination. I advocate for people's right to determine their own quality of life. You know, I, I do personally agree with access to death with dignity, but even if I didn't, as a social worker, it is my ethical obligation to advocate for my clients. Um, so the substitutes, uh, there are three main ones, and I kind of laid out what the conversations were and what the changes were in the law. Um, but as they were talking in the, in the committee, Representative Rude, funny, was advocating and he had a lot of personal experiences with his family members dying natural deaths and having terrible quality of lives, which was very touching. Also, the head of the committee, Representative Cody, is also a nurse. And she also was advocating that, you know, like I said earlier, people often will request it and never actually get the medication. Um... And I should note that too, the 267 were how many meds were dispensed, not how many people actually asked for it. I didn't look that up um, and never got the medication. So uh, people just want the medication available as a safety net and it just gives them that peace and calm. And that's totally fine. You know, right up until you swallow, you can change your mind. You never have to take it. Yeah. So it's important for people to know that. Um, so Representative Rude was just saying that the original law in 2009 had been passed overwhelming, overwhelmingly, and he was hoping that this would also go through. He was noting that there was a lot of access issues for rural areas, as we discussed, ph pharmacies and specifically ph physicians. That makes sense. So this bill um, changes the language in, in the actual original law that used to say qualified physician, which specifically meant MD, and now they're changing the law, the language throughout the law to say, or what they want to do, is change it to, quote, qualified medical provider. Um, that is also going to include ARMPs, so nurse practitioners, and uh, PAs, physician's assistants. Like our doctor. Yes. 
So as we were talking about, in rural areas, a lot of times you're not going to have an MD. You're going to have ARMPs or PAs as your doctors. I think most people probably have ARMPs or PAs that work for an MD that oversees the clinic. So it's important that you're able to have those conversations with your primary care physician that you've known and that knows you. Yeah. And that you can have those conversations, even if they don't participate, <clears throat> that you're at least able to have the conversation about what your prognosis looks like, what your disease trajectory might look like, and what you want to have happen. The competence determination was expanded. Uh, they changed the language a little bit. It includes social workers, of course, um, psych ARMPs, and mental health counselors. So that's just making sure that we're determining that people are mentally competent to make an informed decision. There was some language change around the delivery of medications. It says, quote, delivery of the dispensed drug to the qualified patient, the attending qualified medical provider or other person as requested by the qualified patient may be made by personal delivery, by messenger service, or with a signature required on delivery by the postal service or similar private parcel delivery entry um, entity, unquote. I'm pretty sure that is different as of right now. I think you have to go to the pharmacy directly. Um, you can have your representative pick it up, but I think you have to go to the pharmacy directly or there are a few pharmacies that will deliver to you. But I don't think they've been able to use delivery services before. So I think that's different. Um, representative Rude did mention that there was a case in Eastern Washington where a pharmacist actually put the medications in their car from Western Washington and drove all the way to Eastern Washington to get this person their meds. Wow. That is a serious access problem. Yeah. That is an inequity that we need to fix. And it's inequity against people that live in rural areas. It's against, you know, poorer communities, um, likely persons of color. Speaking of poorer community, community, you know what I mean. Communities. Yeah, and uh, economic status. Mm-hmm. What? Do, who pays for this? Well, yeah, I think that change is going to come a lot later. This is not part of the bill. Right now, that medication is private pay. No insurance will Got pay it. for that at all. That is a federal statute because it's not federally. I, I don't think that's going to change until there's some kind of federal death with dignity situation. So as much as I agree that it should be, and if you want to just be brutal about it and talk purely about finances, you'd think the insurance companies would back it because it's a lot cheaper than ongoing care costs. But they'll never say that because it sounds bad, right? Yeah. It's not about that. It's never been about that. It's about people's private choice. But insurance companies are just not going to take that chance. Too many lobbyists. Is it expensive? It's about... Right now, there's two different ones. Most people access the $700 compound. They work equally. But there's a different medical compound that I think is about $2,000. Wow. Originally, it was closer to $4,000. So they've really reduced the cost. $700 is still expensive. And it can be absolutely financially unattainable for people. Right. Um, there are, if you go through End of Life Washington, there are some resources that are foundations and charities that may be able to help, but that's mm -hmm. never a guarantee. Yeah. So that's another barrier. It's not addressed in this bill as much as I would love it to be. Right. But I will say the changes that they are trying to make are significant. So yeah. aside from changing MD to ARMP and PA, I think the biggest change to me 
is that a person may request medicines 72 hours after an initial request rather than 15 days. That's good. That is huge. And as I was reading through this bill, the caveat is this, which I didn't know until today. Quote, notwithstanding subsection one of this section, if at the time of the qualified patient's initial oral request, the attending qualified medical provider determines that the qualified patient is not expected to survive for 72 hours, the qualified patient may receive the prescription upon making the second oral request sooner than 72 hours. So there is not only the change from 15 days to 72 hours, which is huge. And I have personally had patients that wanted to access it that didn't have 15 days. This is huge. But if the doctor determines that they're not going to survive, like maybe they're hooked up to a machine, and if they unhook from that machine, they're going to die within a couple days and not make it to that 72 hours, they will now have the option to get it sooner than that if the doctors say they won't live for 72 hours. So basically they're saying, you still have to have all the qualifications. You still have to have two doctors. You still have to be mentally competent. You still have to be able to give it to yourself. But, I mean, the barrier for the time frame, I cannot state enough, is enormous. You have, you look like you have some thoughts about that. Uh, I'm not sure. Let me think about it. I think that instance, the less than 72 hours, is going to be pretty rare. That's going to be a tough one because 72 hours is, well, if they had to wait 15 days, you know, what's three days they're going to be gone anyway. They won't, you know, need it. But I don't think people should suffer either. Uh, you know, I think they should be able to have the prescription. And it's kind of like a, a marriage license. You can't, you can get it, but you can't get married for three days. Mm -hmm. So if that prescription had a delay on it, I mean, the person you know, had access to it, had the prescription, physical prescription, but couldn't, you know, had a, a limit on when they could access it. Well, they're not handed, they're not ever handed the prescription, number one. The no. prescription goes directly from the prescribing doctor to the pharmacy. But, it, I mean, they could do that on the computer. They just hit a button. Mm -hmm. But there's a time. A time. They, they don't release the prescription until the day it's available. That's how it works right now. So the person actually has to call or notify the doctor that they still want to go through with it at this point, at, you know, at day 15. And then the prescription is released to the pharmacy on the day they're able to pick it up. Oh, see, I would thought that it, they could actually put it in the pharmacy in the system and not be able to pick it up at a certain, until for a certain time. I just think they probably don't do that for safety precautions. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, that's true. But I mean, I, I'm having, a, it's not just described in the bill. I can't imagine there's going to be more than a 0.5% of time than people have less than 72 hours to actually, the prognosis is less than 72 hours. I'm thinking that's probably going to have to be something like they're doing dialysis or some kind of mechanical function that will shut off. I can't imagine there's any other circumstance that's going to be sent, that you know is 72 hours and they're still mentally competent and they're still able to take their own meds. Yeah. Well, I mean, all of those things still have to be met. Yeah. It's like our friend. He probably would have done it, but he wasn't mentally competent. Not by that point. Right. But he could have done it 
sooner if you want. He wasn't. He wasn't. Hadn't been mentally competent for a while because of the toxins in his system. Yeah. But and because he was in such denial. But um, in that circumstances, it wouldn't have mattered if he had seventy-two hours because he wouldn't have been able to. That's a lot of the thing. I mean, if they could have done it in seventy-two hours, are they actually going to be mentally capable of? You know, if they're dying that rapidly. I mean, I'm, I understand there's a lot of people that are, yes, would be mentally competent right up to the moment they pass, you know. No, and that's, the requirement is they have to be mentally competent when they're taking the medications. That's why they have to make that second request, oral request, right. to the doctor before the prescription's released. Yeah, I would think 72 hours would be a really short span. Maybe very few of those. I agree. But I do so agree with... Not having to wait 15 days. Oh, I agree with that, too. I'm just... Yeah, the 72 hours, I'm in doubt of that because... I can't can't see that even being a a thing, but I'm glad they added it as a provision just in case. Yeah, that's good. The last thing that they added is that uh, a healthcare provider may not prohibit another healthcare provider from participating. So, right now, the law states that... um, it's just clarifying that it so for example if someone is in private practice and they also work for a clinic or a bigger like providence again for an example they're not allowed to prescribe through providence but if they have a private practice or work at a free clinic or some or doing it off-site not on the campus it can't be on the legal practice where they have the privileges it can't there you know that's all very specified and laid out if you want to read it Um, There's a lot of language around that. But it's basically saying that they can't fire or prohibit the person from participating so long as they're not doing it under the employment. with the hospital or whoever. Right. If they're doing it on their own, outside the premises, that they should not be penalized for participating. So that's pretty huge, too, because there are doctors that want to participate that we've talked to. And... They can't because they have been told in no uncertain terms they will be fired if they find if the employer main employer finds out. Yeah, that's not right either. <clears throat> I mean, I, I understand the Hippocratic oath, but I understand death with dignity. Mm-hmm. You know, not letting somebody suffer in pain. So those are the updates. That's uh, currently in the Washington State legislature, legislature, and uh, I want to let people know about it because if. You know, if you have a strong feeling one way or another, I would highly encourage you to write your senator that represents you if you live in Washington um, and let them know. I've done it already today, and it's important for my role as an advocate, but also as my personal need that if I ever need this, I want to be able to access it. And I don't want there to be a barrier for other people that want to access it. Yeah, I think it's a good deal. I think it, it should be available and more readily available than 15 days. Mm-hmm. Because that, that's, a, that's a lifetime it when you're can suffering. Be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And to the family also. It's not just the patient. Mm-hmm. It's, it's the family that suffers right along with them. Yeah. You know? so yeah. It's important. It's huge. And there are plenty of circumstances. You know, people might think 15 days is not a long time, but as you point out, it can feel like a lifetime. And there can be circumstances where there's no more treatment available and you may decompensate to the point of not being able to access it within 15 days. Yeah. That happens, I wouldn't say frequently necessarily, but often enough. 
Yeah. Often enough. I've had it happen more than once with me and my patients. So uh, I want people to have access to this. I'm super excited that I didn't, I'm sad I didn't know about it beforehand. I would have been advocating it long before this, but. Well, hospice, you can only do so much. And some people are, are at the point that none of your, your meds that you're allowed to give are adequate. Will, will help somebody in that kind of agony and pain. Yeah, I mean, I did write that in. Like, yes, we have a lot of tools to try to keep people comfortable, but there are certain diseases and progressions and things that we can only treat so much. It doesn't mean that they're going to have this peaceful, sweet death that people right. see on TV. And there are going to be times when there's nothing we can do to prevent that. There, there are certain deaths, like, for example, embolisms, pulmonary embolisms, uh, or aneurysms or they're very painful. There's nothing you can do about that. Not a damn thing. You can't see it coming. You can't premedicate for it. It happens instantly and it's excruciating. And unless you are sedated in a hospital, it's unlikely that you're going to be able to prevent that. And if that's not something you want to go through for whatever reason, and again, I fully support people wanting to go through natural death. If that's what you choose, that's what you choose. And I support it. Yeah. And we'll do everything we can to make you comfortable. However, yes and. There are times when that's not possible. And we are expecting a complicated death. And it may be what we call a wet death, which is awful when your lungs and your body starts filling up with fluid and you gurgle and you have foam and your family is completely distressed because it sounds like you're drowning. I can make the patient comfortable. I can't make the family not hear that. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's awful. Yeah. Awful. I'm I've sorry. I'm sorry to have to tell people this, but I've heard it. It's it's not pleasant. It's it's just, it's reality though. I know it is, but it's so sad and it is so excruciating to listen to. It's it's like a horror movie mm -hmm. right in front of you in real life. And there's not anything you can do about it. No. Nope. So. And you want to because you're you're hollering at whoever's helping to do something, mm -hmm. and there's nothing they can do. Yeah. It's sad. I mean, there are certain things to make it less, but it's not going to ever go away. So, so you know, to end on a light note. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I hope that they pass this. I hope that it's accessible. I'm super excited to see how this goes. If you have more questions about it, you can always email me at someDayDeadPC at gmail.com. You can find me on Twitter at someDayDeadPC. And, uh, and yeah, advocacy. Might as well make the world a better place while we're still here, because someday we'll all be dead. <laughs>